0: Welcome to the People of Packaging podcast, where we
1: introduce people to the world of packaging and the people of packaging to the world. Here are your hosts, Adam Peek and Ted Tate.
0: So this is part one of two interviews that myself and Ted got to do with Daryl Jobe. The first one, if you are not just inspired and pumped up uh, I don't know what's wrong with you uh, Daryl's story is what we really dig into in episode in the first part and then we'll have a second episode where we dig more into what it is that he's doing uh, with his company that you can see back here or on this side, I'm not sure which side uh, if you're watching the video but we'll dig in more into Very cool in episode two we really dig into Daryl's story in episode one, his background and. Um, Where he came, it's just, I can't even tell you how blessed you're going to be listening to this guy speak and share his story. So I'm excited to call him a friend and to see what he's doing and just to be along for the ride and watch him just kill it in this industry and and especially when you kind of hear about his story, I think you're going to be really thrilled and want to connect up with him as well. So this is part one of two, uh, an interview that we did with Daryl Joe. All right, welcome everybody back to another episode of the, I feel like like the Ohio State University, the People of Packaging podcast. Uh, this is an episode that has been in the works now for over a year. Uh, I first uh, met Daryl and kind of heard about Daryl's story uh, during, I think we met at like Pack Expo, but I remember I came across you on LinkedIn or something. And it was you have you have uh, this killer uh, backstory and kind of where you came from. We're going to dig into that. But I also want to get into because it's a packaging, you know, packaging podcast. I want to talk about what you're doing at Vericool and some of the some of the ways in which you are disrupting and and doing some really unique things there. So uh, I'm I'm super stoked for this. Uh, We got Ted on as well. So uh, it's going to be. I I will steer clear of any tag team bad rap uh, jokes, if I can. Please do. Please do. (laughs) Yeah, we don't. um, I mean, we are back again. We are. Sorry. Anyway, uh, (laughs) that song was so bad, everybody. If you don't know, tag team, there it is. It's a bad song. Uh, Don't don't let your kids listen to it. So, Daryl, welcome uh, to the podcast. Thanks for being on. Uh, So, why don't you just go ahead and. You know, introduce yourself, who you are, what you do, where you live, where you grew up, you know, just, and then we'll just get into it from there. No, awesome. Awesome. First of all, I would like to say
1: thank you, Adam. Thank you, Ted. I've been looking forward to this. Uh, This is my actual second podcast, and um, this is one that I've been looking forward. There's been a line, a laundry list lineup, and I'm just like, no, I got to, I got to, I got to hit it with these fellas first. So I'm pretty excited. But, uh, you know, um, I'm 40 years old now. Um, born and raised in Richmond, California, uh, was born in 79, and, uh, you know, typical family, I don't want to say typical family, typical family for that area at that time period. The crack epidemic was pretty detrimental to uh, so many families and so many lives during the 80s, and uh, my family got caught into that. Uh, early on, uh, you know, my family separated, my mother and my father separated, it was a lot of abuse and physical and sexual abuse, and uh, there was a separation there. And drugs and alcohol played a played a part in uh, a lot of that. Early on and in, early into the 90s, um, I ended up going to a boarding school. I think it was like 1991, Ended up at a place called Hannah Boys Center, which is uh, a boarding school for boys. You know, boys looking either trouble youth or you just don't have that family infrastructure that is that is needed to help you develop into a young man and. Uh, Was amazing. Had an amazing time there. Was the only part of my childhood that I really felt I actually got to enjoy being a kid, where you don't think about uh, the realities of life and families and struggles and so on. And I ended up leaving Hannah. I believe in early ninety-three or the end of ninety-two, and uh, came back to Chaos. Uh, My sister, who was thirteen at the time, no twelve at the time, was in a boarding—I mean, a um, a group home. My sister that was 14 was homeless on the streets. Um, I found out a lot of stuff that my father had done from the past and stuff that my stepfather had done. And it was just chaos. And I just didn't understand what was going on. You know, you're 13 years old and you're like, what just happened to our family? It just even got worse. And um, just, it was a tough, tough time for me. I ended up homeless. My mother kicked me out at an early age and um, ended up in the streets. And it was a shock for my system because you go from a very structured environment like Hannah Boys Center, which was a boarding school home that you had been living for two years. Everything is regiment, everything is structured, a uh, lot of love, a lot of, you know, just boys your age is trying to do boy things, catching snakes, lizards, creating, you know, 4h and you just name it. Just something that a kid from the inner city would never be able to uh, participate in, um, in that environment. And Oh, it was a shock. It was a shock to me. Ended up homeless and I remember going to a kid that I had met shortly while I was in school when I got out. I dropped out of school in the eighth grade and I came in contact with this kid and I just said, Hey, I have nowhere to live. I have nowhere to uh excuse me. I have nowhere to uh go. Can I spend a night at your home? And uh he said, Yeah, well, unknown to me, he was a gang member and uh that was uh that was the start of a rough road for the next, I would say, six to you know six to eight years and uh, shortly after that you know you're hanging out with these guys and feeding you you're spending a night at one guy's house to another guy's house and you know you're naive you're young and uh one day while in north richmond um, we were at a party my friend that you he's deceased now he ended up getting killed uh, later on after this but uh he looked at me said hey what's up are you ready let's do it i said yeah let's do it so went around the back ended up getting the, the initial gang billy bully beat down and, um, it's from there on, man, my life was changed. And, uh, that, that night we ended up getting shot at, and ended up uh, being chased by the police. And I remember trying to run over and hop a fence and it was so high. I couldn't get over. It was the first time I had ever been intoxicated and I couldn't, um, I couldn't jump over. And, you know, going back and looking at my 13 year old son now and seeing, um, seeing how young he is, I just couldn't imagine him going through and living that lifestyle shortly after I lost a close friend uh, he was killed and um you know I was short I would say with by the age of fourteen I'm in juvenile hall you know I ended up getting a high speed chase with some stolen cars got beat up pretty bad by the police you know <laughs> my first introduction to to the to law enforcement in a, in a negative light and um it was it was a tough time and I felt so abandoned I felt so hurt. I was bothered that I was even in the situation. I wanted to play football. I was a sports fanatic. I was a quarterback. I played Pop Warner, you know, growing up. And uh, it wasn't the road that I was looking at for my future. But at the same token, you can't just get out. It's a gang. It's a real gang. And you're talking early 90s. So, you know, people are passing away. And it's just, uh, it's a very dynamic uh, experience. I would say roughly around 16, 17 you know, you're fully embedded. You take this kid that was just soft, sentimental, caring, and now the realities of the world. You see enough death and destruction, uh, you become callous. I remember when I was first introduced to gang members, um, there was just this disconnect between reality and love and and compassion, and I just didn't understand because I was a very sentimental, emotional kid. Right. And you learn, you learn after a time. You got to push that aside or you're not going to survive in these streets. And uh, it was, you know, just even thinking about it back now, it just, it was very, very emotional. Uh, At 16, my girlfriend at the time got pregnant and uh, she was 20 years old. And uh, I remember I was having, I was having a kid
0: so I was like, hey, I got to
1: be a dad. I don't want to be a dad like my dad was. I, I want to be a better dad, but I'm in a gang. What do I do? And I was like, I got to get my stuff together. And I, remember, I didn't go to school. I dropped out in the eighth grade. So you're out there living in the streets, you know, just living mm. in chaos. Um, and I ended up putting myself in job Corps when I turned 17. while she was about to have the child and when she had my daughter. I came out and. um I came back home, ended up getting my GED. I aced the test without even studying. I don't even know how that was even possible because I didn't go to high school, so <laughs> I don't. I didn't, I didn't get that, but I scored one of the highest. Uh, I think science or math, and I had to be do science in um in Nevada because I was in the job corps of Reno. And then when I came home, you know, I told the guys, "Hey, I'm done. You know, I just want to chill, relax. You know, let's just hang out," and uh, you you slowly get sucked back into that lifestyle. You just can't help it. So about 17 and a half, uh, my best friend got murdered. And the realities of death really hit me. You know, around you, people are dying. But uh, when someone that close dies, then it becomes real. Like, wow, what we're doing is, is not replaceable. People are not coming back. Like, what's going on here? It's just it, it hit me in a way. That I really had to start reflecting on who I was and who I was going to become, and um, I ended up getting a scholarship from Juvenile Hall to go to a historically black college out in Knoxville, Tennessee. And I remember I was like, "I'm not going. You're crazy. It's not going to happen." I was so used to my surroundings because of the environment. That's all I'd known. Anything outside of that was just too—it um, was too different. And when I look back at it, I felt more comfortable in a in a in a environment that was full of chaos, destruction, drugs, murder, than something that was much more beneficial to my health. And um,
0: hmm.
1: I remember uh, my mom what, coming to me. In what the school? What school was it? By the way, it was uh, Knoxville College. It's a okay. uh, historically black college that was uh, established uh, just right after the Civil War and the the college was an uncredited college they had actually lost their accreditation and really it was just a housing place for them to bring more students to get their stuff back up and going no normal student wanted to go to this school so they were housed they were shipping kids from chicago um south you know south side from the bay area from la from all over these these you know inner city hoods that uh were trying to get you know these kids you know up and going but at the same time he created a melting pot of disaster because now you got every gang in america at this school and it's not it's just was chaos but anywho um i ended up accepting lord the lord um in college and i and i'm gonna tell you this i I didn't believe in god i hated god i had a vengeance for god i just felt like how could you bring me into this world and um leave me just stuck here you know, in this environment. And then I came to the realities like, man, there is a God I am loved. And Mm. I just said, man, if I can do, if I could, you know, channel this, 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 this love and this opportunity, you know, I I could do some good. I ended up getting kicked out of college because before, um, before all this happened, excuse me, I just, one second. Um, I just cleared up. Sorry about that. Yeah, no worries. Um, I ended up, uh, so I ended up getting kicked out of college. I ended up coming back home, and uh, I remember my homeboys all pulled up. They were like, "Hey, he's back! Da, 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 da. Let's, let's get it going!" You know, pulled up the homies' cars, the the drugs, the guns, and I was like, no, nah, I'm done, guys. I'm done. I'm gonna be a father," and uh, they they took offense to that. And I remember I was I went to church one night, and I was coming back home. It was a Saturday night, and I went to turn on the TV and I went to press the button, and uh, my wall started flying apart. I'm hearing bodies fire, bah, 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 bah. you know, everything's just getting shot up and, you know, I'm getting hit with sheetrock rock and plaster. And um, it was, it was, it was a, a unique time, a moment in time that just shocked me and it made me realize all the destruction that had happened to other people that we had caused while we were living that lifestyle. It's, it was tough. So I ended up moving to a different city. My mother said, they're going to kill you. You're trying to do better, uh, you know, get your stuff together. And I ended up uh, going to a city called Pittsburgh. Started, I became a plumber, and I was like, "Hey, I'm gonna be a pipe fitter. I'm gonna go through the union. I'm gonna make fifty, sixty bucks an hour. I'm gonna call it a day. You know, I got my stuff. I'm gonna change my life." Ended up getting married, and I had uh, my second daughter, and um, my back blew out while I was at work. Uh, I was working in Half Moon Bay uh, off the coast near San Francisco on a, a apartment complex site, and I was running gas line, and I was about 21, and my back completely went out. I couldn't move. I couldn't walk. But at the same token, I was all tattooed from wrist to neck, you know, Richmond this and that. So I remember going to the doctors, and uh, they denied me, Workman's Comp. Workman's Comp denied me automatically. So now I'm being uh, evicted from our apartment. My daughter's young. And, you know, I didn't know what else to do. So I ended up going back into that lifestyle. We're getting evicted. We were tired of eating at people's homes. Uh, we had nowhere to live. And you're trying to get your life back together. But at the same time, now you have no funds, So you go back to the world. To That's your that's your routine. It's it's survival. I got to take care of my family. And that just created a whole other dynamics of being involved with, uh, you know, a very high level of narcotics and just that environment. And back in the 90s, you know, the, or excuse me, uh, late 90s, early 2000s. It was just a really, really unique time. And uh, I ended up looking at uh, a five-year prison sentence. And I remember I was fighting my case, and I'm in the whole 23-hour lockdown, and my public defender's trying to get me to plea bargain and accept a five-year prison sentence. And I was just like, I can't do it. And they're in, And what they were accusing me of, I actually didn't do. So I'm like, I can't take this but it was a lot of soul searching and reflection. Like, Daryl, who did you become? You were on a path. That was your trajectory was up. Then you just Mm. took a downfall and you went back to the world, you know, instead of, you know, just sucking it up and no, this can't be. And I I remember talking to my daughter while I was in my cell, when I say talking to her, I used to imagine her just walking around and me and her just talking, you know, you're on 23 hour lockdown, you know, six months, not seeing anybody, your brain starts wigging out a little bit. And um, the, the cool thing about it was it was a lot of time for me to reflect on who I am and who I'm going to be for the remainder mm-hmm. of my life. I was 23 years old, and I made a bunch of promises to God. And I said, in you know, the Lord, give me this opportunity. Just help me with this case. Do whatever. I promise when I get out, I'm serving you. I'm serving everyone. I'm serving the environment. I'm serving people. I'm going to dedicate my life to my family, to my children, to be a father, and so on. And uh, mm-hmm. I remember going to court. We were getting ready for my trial and my preliminary hearing. And um, in doing so, um, I go there, they're there testifying against me. Everybody's on the witness stand, and I'm looking like, wow, they're lying. And the judge felt like something was wrong, and he looked at me, and he said, you know, Job, there's something about you I just don't want to throw away. If I give you six more months, would you take it? I said, absolutely. (laughs) So he gave me six months. He hit his gamut. Public, I mean, a district attorney gets upset, this is absurd. I look at my public defender like, wow, you were trying to get me to take five. This is not cool. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I had to come out, you know what I'm saying? So then I had to come out and say, hey, who am I going to be? Daryl? now it's time to hit the road running. Workman's Comp actually accepted my case I seen an orthopedic surgeon and they found out that I had a herniated disc and it was bulging into my nerve and I had a lot of damage back there and I needed surgery. So they ended up giving me a large chunk of cash and apologized for leaving me without during that time. And they said, no, you should have been taken care of. You should have had surgery. So now I have a decent amount of cash just to get started with. And it was like, what are you going to do, Daryl? And, uh, I couldn't really have a physical labor job. So I said, Hey, I'm gonna buy a big rig. I'm gonna, you know, I'm gonna go out there and make ten, twelve thousand $12,000 a month running cross country and just, you know, and, and, and doing it. And, um, I did that for about a year and a half. It did fairly well. And then I came across a good friend, um, that wasn't doing that well at the time. She was involved in narcotics and so on. And a bunch of my friends, and I used to do a lot of mentoring and trying to get people back on their feet, right. telling them about the opportunities of life and so on. And when I did that, you know, I built this real good relationship and one day I went to her house and I was like, Wow, what does your dad do? It was, you know, it was a six, seven million dollar house with Ferraris in the garage. And I'm like, What is he doing? She's like, he sells boxes.
0: So
1: I'm like, boxes? <laughs> I'm like, what kind of boxes is he selling? And uh and she's like the cardboard boxes. And I'm like, yeah, right. And I remember, cause now my cousin, who was with me at the time, and he was roughly around, I would say, 20, 21. I was 23, 24, and uh, he works for us now. Now he's one of our engineers. But I remember him standing next to me, and I turned and looked at him, and I was like, yeah, boxes with cocaine in them. That's the only way you're going to get this <laughs> there's no other way. And then she gave me his she gave me his business card, and she said, Darryl, you should call him. You would be great at it. And I just remember looking at that card, feeling it, and just looking at it and uh, wow wow um wow it just brings back so many memories um, yeah yeah but i remember looking at that card and uh it was stephen gould corporation i yeah, can't no. give you the guy's name but uh he he, he runs he, he runs the whole gamut um you know so um i ended up calling a guy for six months <laughs> and he would never return my phone calls and um I remember her mom reached out to me. She wasn't doing that well. And they said, hey, why don't you come and sit down with us? And, you know, she, she says you're a good friend of her. We want to, you know, do a um, rehabilitation, you know, a family. You know, what, I forgot what you call it. When you come down, you do. Um, the intervention. You know, a talk yeah there you go intervention there you sure. go at the top of my tip and um do an intervention with her we want to send her to arizona and so on and i said absolutely so when i get there you know there's two agendas first of all i got to help my friend second agenda hey pops i've been hitting you up every day where you been <laughs> i want this job so uh he looks at me i'm tattooed ball head, and he's like no ain't gonna happen <laughs> so, uh her mom reached out to me and said daryl you have that you know you have tattoos you have a criminal record um it's just never going to happen. You, you, know, you know, you never went to school. You never even went to high school. You have no education, so you can't. And um, I remember growing out my hair, and I started getting laser surgeries on all my tattoos. And I went back and showed them, you know, Richmond on my neck gone, Crips on my knuckles is gone. All my, You know, I'm just getting surgery after surgery. Luckily, I was able to go through a, a gang program, and uh, they helped me out. And uh, one day he hit me up and he says, hey, Job, I got an interview for you. So I'm like, oh, great. I get, you know, I'm going to get an opportunity. He's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. not with me.
0: <laughs>
1: I got an interview with a company called Amcor Sunclips, which is yeah. now Aurora. And um, he's like, uh, they want to do some business with me. Why don't you sit down? They have an interview. If you're good as you say you are, uh, you'll get the job. Uh, if not, please stop bugging me. So I had to go buy a suit for the first time. I've never worn a suit. So I'm like, this is going to feel weird. So I'm fine. I'm feeling congested. I'm used to baggy clothes. End of going into the interview. And um, I remember just sitting down with the gentleman. Now he's, uh, he's I think he's the COO for uh, Ernest Paper. And a um, great guy named Mike Bacotta. On a, you know, when I sit back and I think about individuals in the industry who've been instrumental in who I became later on, it's, he was a good guy you know, always gave me great advice, honest. And, um, you know, I had a long interview with the guy and uh, the interview was very unique because he said, Daryl, you have no education. You have no sales experience. Why should I hire you? And I said, man, I've been selling my whole life. And that just led into a whole nother conversation. He thought it was funny. But when we got done, there was a couple of things that happened. He said, Daryl, first of all, I appreciate it. But, you know, I don't know where this is going to go. It's probably unlikely that we're going to hire you. But I do want to tell you this. There's some people that were um, not made for sales. There's some people that you can teach how to sell. And there's some people that were just born to sell. And those are the honest people. And he's like, Darryl, you were born to sell. And he shook my hand. And I remember just just you know pondering on that and just really reflecting on what he had said. And the next day, I remember getting a call from their human resource department indicating, um, Daryl, would you come down and take a personality test? I said, yeah, what's that? And you got to remember eighth, eighth grade dropout as far as my education goes is a seventh grade. So our being able to articulate certain grammar was very, very difficult. So I said, yeah. So it was a four to six hour test. And, uh, I remember taking, and there were certain words that popped out of me that I just didn't remember, like assertive. And, uh, just like, well, you know, what do I press and what do I not press? And, you know, what do I save me as a reflection of who I am? And, uh, yeah. I took I took it. Next thing you know, I get a call back the next day. They said, Daryl, we want to offer you a job. So I'm like, okay, um, how much am I gonna start? And they said forty one thousand. I'm like, Oh, why, I, you know, I'm making a hundred and you know, a hundred and eight, hundred and you know, ten, you know, what do I do? And I said, you know, I'm gonna gamble on myself, I'm gonna go ahead and move forward with it. So I ended up taking the job. I ended up working for a company called Masterbox, who was a, a division of Amcor Sunclips, and uh doubled my sales in a year, my territory and you know, everybody was calling, you guys hearing about the hoodlum? You're hearing about the hoodlum in the industry? He's out there tearing it up. That's what they remembered. You know, you know, like, you know like, who's the hoodlum? The gang guy, you know, blah, 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 The kid. you know, and uh, it was it was awesome. It was a great run, but it let me know, I would always reflect on, Daryl, people would ask me, well, how'd you keep on jumping over these obstacles and these hurdles? And I would say, you know what, I just kept on telling myself, I know I got God on my side, so if I got him, I can go, you know, I can do anything. I can do anything. And, uh, you know, I if used I to buy. Imagine. By the way,
0: I, I used to buy from MasterBox in California when I worked for my uncle. We would buy stock boxes Are from from MasterBox up in it was Cer- oh, was it where was it was it Cerritos? Cerritos.
1: Yeah, yeah. yeah Cerritos. I, I can still Cerritos. see the
0: BMC on the on the, the MasterBox <laughs> Cerritos, and then uh, there was a plant in San Marcos as well. Um, yeah, uh, with Cantalap. I was up north yeah yeah
1: so what we would do is we would pull the material and then we'd utilize a, a landsberg's warehouse and we'd consolidate it and then we would sell it to landsberg's customers to keep on helping landsberg build up their with their costs and their prices and so on yeah but that I was, makes that I makes thinking,
0: sense
1: absolutely so i remember taking a job after that You know, I I did well. They promised me I would make a certain amount. They didn't end up paying it. So I was being recruited by a lot of uh, distributors out there at that time. So a distributor reached out to me, Ernest Paper, which was Calvi at the time. They had bought a division. I ended up going to Calvi. Within three months, they ended up letting me go. And uh, I was their number one rookie in the distributor program. Hmm. And, uh, but the sales manager, she's just like, Daryl. I remember she telling me it was a Sacramento based company, which is pretty conservative. And, you know, at the same time, I'm very green to the industry, I'm very green. Um, just because of my past, you know, um, and she's just like, you're not just, you're not made for the industry. You actually need to leave. You just, this is not for you. You need to find something else. Yeah. Wow. And, um, I remember, <clears throat> I remember driving down Highway 5 and I was, I was breaking down. I was It was a hard time because you had given, I had given everything for where I was at
0: mm-hmm. and to
1: know I would left there. And now you're being told you're not made for the industry. You're like, wow, what do I do now? I remember calling a good friend of mine, Nafi, Nafi Kuristan. Uh, he was, uh, he worked for a division of uh, Amcor, uh, which was a box sheet plan. He was good friends with my friend's father. And I called him and just, you know, just said, thank you. I appreciate everything that you've done for me over the years. I mean, over the past year and a half. And he's just like, what are you talking about? I'm like, I just got fired. He's like, what? and I was like I, he's like what happened? I, he was like that lady's nuts I told him and he's like what are you going to do? And I said I'm going to go back to Richmond. I'm going to go back to Richmond. I'm going to be a police officer. I'm going to go back and get back to my community and I'm going to help fix some of the damage that I destroyed. And he's like you're crazy. You were made for packaging. And I was like no, I'm done. I just I just feel der- I'm not I'm not like one of these guys and so on. And he's like well, just interview one family. Let me just have you sit down with one family before you make your final decision. So I made a uh, I made I made that um that promise. And uh, I sat down with this family and I fell in love with it. And it was a California, Northern California based company, a distributor at the time that was doing probably about 10 million. Um, And the genuineness, I met this, 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 this mom and her son, and he was roughly 40 at the time. I believe she was around 60, 65. And uh, they were just amazing people. And you know, a day later they offered me a job, and I just remember being so grateful for the opportunity. That all I wanted to do was just outperform everybody, just become the best sales rep. And I made some bets with the, with the, the son. You know, he's part owner, and I said, "Hey, if I give you this amount of sales and this, I want you to buy me a set of golf clubs. I want this." He, he's making all these deals with me, believing that I'm not going to accomplish any of them. And I hit the gates running. He's buying me golf clubs. He's buying me this. He's doing this. <laughs> next you know. <laughs> within three years, um, I'm their number one sales rep. You know, I'm probably managing a book of business about four to 5 million. Um, and things are going well. We have about 15 reps. Business is going well. We're doing about 25 million at the time. And I have, you know, I've always stayed with that company. And about five years ago, I decided to go off on my own cause I was going to buy a portion of their company. Okay. Well, during the 2009 market collapse, right. You know, when everything was shutting down because of the housing economy, um, I looked at my book of business, and I was I wasn't a much, excuse me, a much better position than the company because I lost only about fifteen percent of my business, when the the rest of the company I would say lost about forty to fifty percent. So I evaluated my customers. I did an examination, and I was like, "Wow, the reason why I'm staying much more uh, stable is because I'm more focused on medical." so let me do this. Let me completely only focus on medical. I'll focus on some contract manufacturers like Flextronics and Mina and so on, but let me just focus solely on medical. And when I did so, I started understanding the need for temperature controlled products. And then I noticed that the individual that I, were, I was competing with was manufacturer reps. And there's a much different between a manufacturer rep than a right. distributor. And a distributor. And man- Yes, because when I look at a distributor, a distributor has to be quick on his toes. You have to understand multiple product lines. You're going to have a much better sales skills uh, to actually know how to navigate and really meet a customer's needs. Where
0: yeah.
1: a manufacturer's rep is more of an engineer. He's going to come in. This is all I can give you. When I can take a better step, i look back and look at all types of product lines and give the customer a much better solution and not just be a, a one or two solution guy. And as I did, so I ended up hooking up with an old timer in the industry uh, in Southern California, Gary Lance out of H.D. Carry. So he started introducing to me some compostable solutions and so on. Really wasn't viable for the market, wasn't cost effective. And he's like, Darrell, what do you think? Do you want to pitch some of this stuff to your customers? And then what I started doing too was looking at the future. Okay, now when I look at plastic bands and styrofoam bands that are happening in the market, they're only able to happen because there's a solution right behind it. Mm -hmm. Now, there's gonna be a replacement to styrofoam coming up, it's indefinite. So what are you gonna do? So I took a bigger step back and said, let me create some environmentally friendly solutions for that time so that we can push these bands faster at the same time we can be in front of the curve. So I'm working with Gary, putting this stuff through. I apologize for continuously wiping that camera. Just, I see it get a little blurry there. No, it's so, fine. Um, it happens.
0: We're, we're, <laughs> we're, we're, good. we're all good. So,
1: um, all right, good, good. So then, um, with Gary, um, we ended up developing some stuff, tried to bring some stuff to market. And then I, I wanted to buy a portion of the company that I was in and, um, it just didn't work out. And the, the owner's son, who's part owner of the company said, Darrell, why don't you come up? and create your own company with some of the stuff that you're developing. And I I felt hurt. I was like, wow, that, that, that hurt. I want a part of your company. I need to solidify my retirement. And, uh, but I actually took about two weeks to think about it. And I came back and I said, Hey, I'm gonna take you up on that offer. I was doing pretty well at the time. I was probably doing close to a half a million a year. Um, and then I'm like, you know what? I think I make enough to start my own company. Then the realities of starting a company made me realize I didn't have enough to, to do so. And, um, And uh, I ended up uh, creating the name Veracool, looked at some of the uh, opportunities and materials and started evolving with some of the packaging and uh, got my first investor, a good friend of mine. I met him in Guatemala. We were on a mission mission trip and uh, we both, um, you know, made a promise that we were going to get 50 percent of whatever we make from Veracool, you know, back to our mission organization to support you know, there's a lot of uh, orphans out there and there's a lot of water wells and just a lot of need in certain places that we work in. Which organization America? Uh Mike Silva International. Okay. So it's the evangelical uh, missionary organization yeah, yeah. and very focused. Most of your, I would say 98% of all funds go directly back to it. 2% goes back to administration costs. And, uh, you know, it's, it's an awesome organization. But with that being said, Things you just started developing in Veracool and bringing stuff to market. In 2015, I created the company. At uh, the end of 2015, started working on my patents and designs and uh, came out with the first solution and started realizing that I was going to need more. So started inventing more and more for e-commerce and the medical industry. Then you started seeing the molded designs. And just recently, um, we just launched our Veracooler, our molded outdoor recreational cooler. Um, we actually invented it well before Igloo. And uh, there's about to be some serious press releases coming out. Um, just with regards to that, I was in conversations with the Igloo CEO prior to them coming out. It was our cooler, their engineers, seen us at the Pack Expo. So uh, there's a lot of stuff that's about to be uh, told with regards to that story. Uh, okay. we in, I invented the cooler actually in Maui uh, when I was on a vacation with my kids right before the 2017 Pack Expo. Okay, And... Um, I invented it because Maui had just banned styrofoam and I was off at a a store and I was bothered that I didn't have nothing to put our stuff in except a styrofoam cooler. And they said it was gonna take another year and a half before they banned the EPS and styrofoam off the island. So I went back and created the Ohana cooler, which is the Vera cooler. Mm -hmm. And then uh, we started designing. We brought the first cooler to life. And uh, in 2017, we got our patents on other biodegradable molded coolers. Back in 2018, we received our first patents. And in our patent design shows the Igloo cooler, which is the solid, you know, cooler, which I supplied them all the information to. And uh, next, you (laughs) know, six months later, they're coming out with the cooler. I'm like, hey, guys, this is not cool. But anywho, you know what, as long as it's replacing the detrimental uh petroleum-based products out there, that's what I'm happy about. But the innovations there. To date, we own twelve patents. Uh we have another eighteen applications. Um we just received five more patents in the past ninety days. So that's pretty cool. Uh we have twenty-nine international filings. And uh we just closed our um we just closed our series A round. We raised nineteen million and uh now it's Dang. just focused on building manufacturing. And uh, we just opened our second location in New Jersey. We have more locations coming out in Tennessee this year. And uh, we're the only company in 2020 that's building out capacity. Everybody else is locked up, loaded for the next year. And uh, we're going to take advantage of this opportunity. And uh, we got some great customers and building a team and so on. So that's it. Veracool is awesome. We got a great team. Another thing, too. We focus on social impacting, second chances. So that's something I, I really believed in. It's not something that we ever did for social media or you know just to get the word out. It was something that I just designed the company to be a part. So we're a no-ass, no-tell company. I don't care what you've done in your past. I don't care what crimes you committed. If you want to work and you want an opportunity to rebuild your life and support your family, we're here. So we have individuals that have been convicted of murder. That done that have done twenty five years, uh, we have guys that have been convicted on drug charges. You know, women. But when you see their families being impacted, people moving to great neighborhoods and keep putting their kids in better school districts, it's one of the most exhilarating and meaningful things. You know, the environment is who we are, but social. It's like how do you not impact people's lives? And it's uh, we're, I, I love Verical. I I do. I love what we're doing in the market
0: and for people oh that's awesome now you said you uh expanded into new jersey yes uh where about new jersey because that's that's
1: where i live i'm in jersey oh wow irvington oh okay and irvington. A, a, yeah. a, they need yeah. a lot of help you, you know they do and you know what's so beautiful it, it, it means so much to me because when we opened up our first ship, i was out there what four weeks ago and then you see people that look just like you coming to your company and you see brothers that need an opportunity and to be able to give those brothers opportunities and see them excel on your line and work harder than anybody that you've ever seen and the only difference is is yeah they have they have, they have some blemishes of tattoos on their arms or they might you know wear their pants upset you know not nah, bring them up you just teach them and but when you see the heart of this man a young father or you see immigrants coming i got a ton of nigerians a ton of Latins that are coming to our company and you see how hard working they are and how grateful. One of the things too that we don't do is we don't take state or federal subsidies. I refuse to take any state state or federal subsidies because I'm never going to minimize someone to a dollar.
0: Hmm. So you
1: got other individuals that when you look at Irvington and you know, the, 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 the pay rates, you know, 10, $11 an hour. I said, no, we're crossing it over 1550. Everybody starts. It's like a vacuum just came, everybody just came to our company and I said, Hey, I want leaders, I want supervisors. Supervisors are making twenty-two. And they're like, Who? How are they paying this amount? And what you see is hmm. I created a well, not I, but we created a culture here at Veracool. We're not going to take advantage of people. We build people up. Because if we're not building people up, we're not doing our jobs. All the money in the world ain't going to mean nothing unless we're 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 giving back to humanity and we're giving back to the world. If I own all the things in the world. When I die, I'm left rich and my family's all rich. What have I accomplished? Not a, not a darn thing. If I have all these beautiful toys and trinkets. When I die, you can't put them in my casket. I can't take them with me. So you got to really look at what am I going to do? And you got to be, you got to live a selfless life, but you got to teach people to live selfless, not by your words, but by your actions.
0: And, um and I love too that's, that's straight out of, uh, you know, I mean, yeah, I'm, I'll be totally honest with you. I'm about ready to run through a wall. And uh, and start and start proclaiming, start proclaiming that everybody needs to get behind. Very cool. What you guys are doing is so cool. And just the, I mean, oh my gosh, there's so much there. I just, I'm thinking about like, you know, store up uh, treasures where moth and rust can't destroy and thieves can't break it, and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Like this is, uh, I mean, I'm about ready to start preaching, to be honest with you. But, uh, <laughs> but you know, we only got uh, we're. We're at about, uh, we got about five, five minutes, minutes left. So, uh, and we can do a part two, by the way. Uh, I am, hey, I'm game, I'm game. Uh, this is because uh, there's so much, there's so much to break down from, you know, your, you absolutely have to do a part two. We got to do a part two. So, um, you know, this, this will be our first part two, but to be honest, so we've never had to transition this, but I think what we're going to do is. Uh, in the second episode, so we'll cue the second episode up right now because I want to dig in. And Ted, maybe you can say some other questions you have. But I mean, you, you, your your story, and you warned us at the beginning. You're like, my story is really dynamic, and I will tell you, it's dynamic. And uh, and I'm sure there's, I'm sure there's many more things that you could have even gotten into. Um, and then from that to you know, the business that you built up and how you're treating people and the positive impact you're making on the environment. Um, you know, what you're doing at very cool. What are some stuff? So, um, I think we need to get another, you know, another 60 minutes on the books. Yeah, uh, yep. cause I, cause yep. I want to, I don't Do want to shortchange it. Um, so we're going to go ahead and call, call this a wrap on part one. This is, uh, this would be Daryl's background. Uh, the background of Daryl Joe, uh, it's a cool story, Ted, anything else that you wanted to chime in on? Cause I'm. No, it was awesome. And, and it, I think it, it reaches out to a broader audience as to how packaging can change your life,
1: man. Oh, yeah. That's, absolutely. that's,
0: that's the truth. Uh, and I'm, I, that's what my Ted talk is about. So Daryl, I've got new, uh, I'm giving a Ted Ted talk on, uh, on packaging in September. Wow. And so, uh, I may reach out to you for, for something. And, uh, quote quote some things that you said but man this has been awesome. Anything you so, need my brother. I am I'm so I'm so like humbled and honored to know you and I'm excited for our second conversation. Uh me and too me too. Just to hear more about what you got. So part one was it's not a planned wrap. but part one is in the is a wrap. It's in the books. And uh part two will be cool. next week uh whenever uh whenever this comes out. So uh, let's yeah, do it. Our our first two part episode. And And Daryl, definitely, we'll get more into the technology and the packaging and understanding where you see things going in the future, so. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah.
1: I like it. I like it. Thank you, gentlemen. It's been a pleasure. Thank you to your audience. Looking forward to part two.
0: Yeah, for sure. All right. All right.